Welcome to tape number 10 of Gleanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies which Pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of part two of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with the uh, reading of uh, chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 16, the rest of Christ. There is no promise in Scripture that God will reward the careless, half-hearted, indolent seeker, but he has declared, You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29.13 He has fixed time for everyone whom he receives. He knew how long the poor man had waited at the pool. John 5.6 And when his hour came, he healed him, so endeavored to be found in the way where his word is preached and diligently search his word in the privacy of your I'm sorry so endeavor to be found in the way where his word is preached diligently search his word in the privacy of your room be much in prayer converse with his people and he may join you unexpectedly as he did the two disciples walking to Emmaus I will give you rest. What a claim. No mere man, no matter how godly and spiritual, could promise this. Abraham, Moses, or David could not bid the weary and heavy laden to come unto him with the assurance that he would give them rest. To impart rest of soul to another is beyond the power of the most exalted creature. Even the holy angels are incapable of bestowing rest upon others, for they are dependent on the grace of God for their own rest. Thus, this promise of Christ manifested his uniqueness. Neither Confucius, Buddha, nor Muhammad ever made such a claim. It was no mere man who uttered these words, Come unto me, all ye that are heavy, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was the Son of God. He made man, he made man and therefore he could restore him. He was the Prince of Peace, thus capable of giving rest. As Christ is the only one who can bestow rest of soul, so there is no true rest apart from him. The creature cannot impart it. The world cannot communicate it. We cannot manufacture it. One of the most pathetic things in the world is to see the unregenerate vainly seek happiness and contentment in the material things. At last they discover these are all broken cisterns which hold no water. 
Observe them turning to priests or preachers, penance or fasting, reading and praying, only to find, as the prodigal son did when he began to be in want, that no man gave unto him. Luke 15. Or see the poor woman who had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. Mark 5.26. All the unregenerate, illiterate, or learned find the way of peace have they not known Romans 3.17 it is much to be thankful that for when we realize experimentally that none but Christ can do helpless sinners any good this is a hard lesson for man and we are slow to learn it the fact is not involved in itself but the devilish pride of our hearts makes us self-sufficient self-sufficient until divine grace humbles us it is part of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit to bring us off our creature dependence, to knock the props from under us, and to make us see that Christ Jesus is our only hope. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Strikingly, this was illustrated by the dove sent forth by Noah. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her, and pulled her in unto him into the ark. Genesis 8.9 Significantly, the very name Noah meant rest. Genesis 5.9 Margin And it was only as the dove was caused to come unto him that she obtained it. So it is with the sinner. What is the nature of this rest Christ gives to all who come to him? Quoting John Newton, quote, The Greek word expresses something more than rest or a mere relaxation from toil. It denotes refreshment likewise. A person weary with long bearing a heavy burden will not need only to have it removed, but likewise he wants food and refreshment to restore his spirits and to repair his wasted strength. Such is the rest of the gospel. It not only puts a period to our fruitless labor, but it affords a sweet, reviving cordial. There is not only peace, but joy in believing. End quote. This it is, thus it is a spiritual rest, a satisfying rest, rest for the soul, as the Savior declared in this passage. It is such a rest the world can neither give nor take away. In particularizing in particularizing upon the nature of this rest, we may distinguish between its present and future forms. Concerning the former, first, it is a deliverance from that vain and wearisome quest which absorbs the sinner before the spirit opens his eyes to see his folly and moves him to seek true riches. Piteous it is to behold those who are made for eternity, wasting their energies and wandering from object to object, searching for what will not satisfy, only to be mortified by repeated disappointments. It is so with all until they come to Christ, for he has written about all the pleasures of this world. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. John 4.13 For example, Solomon, who had everything the heart could desire and gratified his lust to the full, found that, Behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Ecclesiastes 1.14 From this vexation of spirit, Christ delivers his people, for he declares, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. John 4.14 
Second, it is the easing and tranquilizing of a burdened conscience. Only one who has been convicted by the Holy Spirit appreciates what this means. When one has to cry out, The arrows of the Almighty are within me, the poison whereof drinketh of my spirits, the terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Job 6.4 When the curse of God's broken law thunders in our ears, when we have an inward sense of divine wrath and the terrors of a future judgment fall upon the soul, then there is an indescribable anguish of mind. When a true work is wrought in the heart by the Spirit, we exclaim, Thine arrow stick fast in me, and thy hand preface me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. Psalm 38, 2-3. When we first see the wondrous love of God for us and how vilely we have repaid him, then we are cut to the quick. When by faith we come to Christ, all that is altered. As we see him dying in our stead and that there is now no condemnation for us, the intolerable load falls from our conscience, and a peace which pathes all understanding is ours. Third, it is a rest from the dominion and power of sin. Here again, only those who are the subjects of his grace can enter into what is meant. The unawakened are unconcerned about the glory of God, indifferent as to whether their conduct pleases Him. They have no concept of the sinfulness of sin and no realization of how completely sin dominates them. Only when the Spirit of God illumines their mind and convicts their consciences do they see the awfulness of their state, and only then, as they try to reform their ways, they are conscious of the might of their inward foe and of their inability to cope with him. In vain deliverance is sought in resolutions and endeavors in our own strength. Even after we are quickened and begin to understand the gospel for a season, often a lengthy one, it is rather a fight than a rest. But as we grow more out of ourselves and are taught to live in Christ and draw our strength from him by faith, we obtain a rest in this respect also. Fourth, there is a rest from our own works. As the believer realizes more clearly the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ, he is delivered experimentally from the law and sees that he no longer owes its service. His obedience is no longer legal but evangelical, no longer out of fear but out of gratitude. His service to the Lord is not in a servile but in a gracious spirit. What was formerly a burden is now a delight. He no longer seeks to earn God's favor, but acts in the realization that the smile of God is upon him. Far from rendering him careless, this will spur him on to strive to glorify the one who gave his own son as a sacrifice. Thus, bondage gives place to liberty, slavery to sonship, toil to rest. And the soul reposes on the unchangeable word of Christ and follows him steadily through light and darkness. There is also a future rest beyond any that can be experienced here. Although our best conceptions of the glory awaiting the people of God are inadequate, first in heaven there will be a perfect resting from all sin, for nothing shall enter there which could defile or disturb our peace. 
what it will mean to be delivered from indwelling corruptions, no tongue can tell. The closer a believer walks with the Lord and the more intimate his communion with him, the more bitterly, bitterly he hates that within him which he ever fights against his desire for holiness. Therefore the apostle cried, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7.24 but we will not carry this burden beyond the grave. Second, we shall be delivered from beholding the sins of others. No more will our hearts be pained by the devil's, excuse me, evils which flood the earth. Like Lot in Sodom, we are grieved with the conversation of the godless, who that has any love to the Lord Jesus Christ, any spark of true holiness, any sense of the worth of souls in his heart, can see what passes among us without trembling. How openly, daringly, almost universally are the commandments of God broken, his gospel despised, his patience abused, and his power defied. End quote. That was a quote from John Newton. If there were the state of affairs two hundred years ago, what would this writer say were he on earth today to witness not only the wickedness of a profane world, but also the hypocrisy of Christendom? As the believer sees how the Lord is dishonored in the house of those who pose as his friend, how often he thinks, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. Psalm 55.6 Third, there will be a perpetual rest from all outward afflictions, for in heaven none will harass the people of God. No more will the saint live in the midst of an ungodly generation which may not actively persecute him, yet they only reluctantly tolerate his presence. Though afflictions are needful, and when sanctified to us they are profitable, nevertheless they are grievous to bear, but a day is coming when these tribulations will no longer be necessary, for the fine gold will have been purged from the dross, the storms of life will be behind, and an unbroken calm will be the believer's lot forever. Where there will be no more sin, there will be no more sorrow. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21.4 Fourth, it will be a rest from Satan's temptations. How often he disturbs the present rest of believers. How often they have caused to say with the apostles, Satan hath hindered me. He seeks in various ways to hinder them from attending the public means of grace, to hinder them when they try to meditate on the, the word or pray. The devil cannot bear to see one of Christ's people happy, so he tries constantly to disturb their joy. One reason why God permits this is that they may be conformed to their head. When he was here on earth, the devil continually hounded him. Even when believers come to the hour of departure from this world, their great enemy seeks to rob them of assurance, but he can pursue them no further. Absent from the body, they are present with the Lord, forever out of the reach of their adversary. Finally, their rest from unsatisfied desires. When one has really been born of the Spirit, he wants to be done with sin forever. He longs for perfect conformity to the image of Christ and for unbroken fellowship with him, but such longings are not realized in this life. Instead, the old nature within the believer ever opposes the new, bringing him into captivity to the law of sin, Romans 7.23.
But death affords final relief from indwelling corruptions, and he is made a pillar in the temple of his God, and he shall go out no more. Revelation 3.12 On the morning of the resurrection, the believer's body shall be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Philippians 3.21 And his soul's every longing shall then be fully realized. The change from grace to glory will be as radical as the change from nature to grace. Chapter 17 The Yoke of Christ Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is not a broadcast invitation addressed indefinitely to the careless, giddy masses. Rather, it is a gracious call to those who seriously seek a peace of heart, yet are still bowed down with a load of guilt. It is addressed to those who long for rest of soul, but who know not how it is to be obtained, nor where it is to be found. To such, Christ says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. But he does not leave it there. He goes on to explain, Our Lord makes the bare affirmation that he is the giver of rest, Matthew 11:28. In what follows, he specifies the terms on which he dispenses it, conditions which he must meet if we are to obtain it. The rest is freely given, but only to those who comply with the revealed requirements of its bestower. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, Matthew 11:29. In these words, Christ voiced the conditions which men must meet if they are to obtain rest of soul. We are required to take his yoke upon us. The yoke is a figure of subjection. The force of this figure may be understood if we contrast oxen running wild in the field with oxen harnessed to a plow, where their owner directs their energies. Hence we read, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Lamentations 3.27 This means that Unless youths are disciplined, brought under subjection, and, and taught to obey their superiors, they are likely to develop into sons of Belial, intractable rebels against God and man. When the Lord took Ephraim in hand and chastened him, he bemoaned that he was like a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. Jeremiah 31:18. The natural man is born like a wild ass's colt. Job 11:12. Completely unmanageable self-willed, determined to have his own way at all costs. Having lost his anchor by the fall, man is like a ship entirely at the mercy of winds and waves. His heart is unmoored, and he runs wild to his own destruction. Thus he has a need for the yoke of Christ if he is to obtain rest for his soul. In its larger sense, the yoke of Christ signifies complete dependence, unqualified obedience, unreserved submission to him. The believer owes this to Christ, both as his rightful Lord and his gracious Redeemer. Christ has a double claim upon him. He is the creature of his hands and gave him being with all his capacities and faculties. He has redeemed him and acquired an additional claim on him. The saints are the purchased property of another, thereby the Holy Spirit says, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and not in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 
Take my yoke upon you, by which Christ meant, surrender yourself to my lordship, submit to my rule, let my will be yours. As Matthew Henry pointed out, quote, We are here invited to Christ as prophet, priest, and king to be saved, and in order to this to be ruled and taught by him. As the oxen are yoked in order to submit to their owner's will and to work under his control, so those who would receive rest of soul from Christ are here called upon to yield to him as their king. He died for his people that they should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Our Holy Lord requires absolute submission and obedience in all things, both in the inward life and the outward, even to bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Alas, that this is so little insist upon in a day when the high claims of the Savior are whittled down in an attempt to render his gospel more acceptable to the unregenerate. End quote. It is it was different in the past when those in the pulpit kept back nothing profitable from their hearers. God honored such faithful preaching by granting the anointed, the anointing of His Spirit so that the Word was applied in power. Take this sample, quoting John Flavel, 1689, quote, No heart can truly open to Christ that is not made willing upon due deliberation to receive him with his cross of suffering and his yoke of obedience. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Matthew 16.24 and Matthew 11.29 Any exception against either of these is an effectual barrier to union with Christ. He looks upon that soul as not worthy of him that puts in such an exception. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10.38 If thou judgest not Christ to be worthy, all sufferings, all losses, all reproaches, he judges the unworthy to bear the name of his disciple. So, for the duties of obedience called his yoke, he that will not receive Christ's yoke can neither receive his pardon nor any benefit by his blood. End quote. Take my yoke upon you. Know carefully that the yoke is not laid upon us by another, but one which we place upon ourselves. It is a definite act on the part of one who seeks rest from Christ and without which his rest cannot be obtained. It is a specific act of mind, an act of conscious surrender to his authority, to be ruled only by him. Saul took this yoke upon him when convicted of his rebellion and conquered by a sense of the Savior's compassion. He said, Look, excuse me, Lord, what wouldest thou have me to do? To take Christ's yoke upon us signifies setting aside of our wills and completely submitting to his sovereignty, acknowledging his lordship in a practical way. Christ demands something more than lip service from his followers, even a loving obedience to all his commands. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven." Whoso heareth these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. 
Matthew seven twenty one and 24. Take my yoke upon you. Our coming to Christ necessarily implies turning of our backs upon all that is opposed to him. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. Isaiah 55, 7. So, taking his yoke presupposes our throwing off the yoke we had worn before, the yoke of sin and Satan, of self-will and self-pleasing. O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, confessed Israel of old, of old Isaiah 26.13. Then he added, But by thee only will we make mention of thy name. Thus taking Christ's yoke upon us denotes a change of master, a conscious, cheering change on our part. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey? Excuse me. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? Romans six thirteen and 16. Take my yoke upon you. It may sound like a paradox, to bid those who labor and are heavy laden to come to Christ for rest, to take a yoke upon them. Yet, in reality, it is far from the case. Instead of the yoke of Christ bringing its wearer into bondage, it introduces a real liberty, the only genuine liberty there is. The Lord Jesus said to those who believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8:31 and 32. There must first be a continuing in his word, a constant walking in it. As we do this, he makes good his promise, and you shall know the truth. Know it in an experimental way. Know its power and its blessedness. The consequence is, the truth shall make you free, free from prejudice, from ignorance, from folly, from self-will, from the grievous bondage of Satan and the power of sin. Then the obedient disciple discovers that the divine commandments are the perfect law of liberty, James 1.25. David said, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts, Psalm 119.45. This ends the reading of tape number 11, or tape number 10. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. 
This book, Part 2 of The Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation Bookshelf and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.